Hi guys, welcome back to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall, and today I'm very, very happy to have Mike Zordos back on the show. Hopefully many of you are aware of him. If not, go back to episode 45, and that's the last time he was on, so it's been a long time, but he is part of the mass research review so you probably have heard his name and does fantastic work with them we dig into a bit of what he's been up to over the past few years in fact and what he's been personally dealing with and also we talk about brian whitaker quite a lot many of you will be aware of him and then we dig into the literature surrounding failure training and reps in reserve so guys sit back and dig in hi guys welcome to the revive stronger podcast i'm your host as always, Steve Hall, and today I have a guest who hasn't been on the show for a long, long time, and I'm very excited to be talking to him again. He was on episode 45, so anyone who's listening who heard that episode, well done, because we're now much, much further on from there. It was April 2019, which in my head doesn't sound like that long ago, but it really was a long time ago, and uh, it's Mike Zordos, uh, for those not watching and who haven't seen. Uh, hopefully, you've heard the name. Um, if you haven't, you might be aware of a lot of his work. I'm sure you are. And you may have even heard of his name via Mass, which I'm sure many of you are subscribed to because it's fantastic. He has a PhD in exercise physiology. He is assistant professor in exercise science at Florida Atlantic University. He focused on kind of optimizing periodization and program design methods. And he, well, we will get into this, but he was a powerlifter um, and a powerlifter coach, powerlifting coach. He actually coached, and we were just talking about this off air, Brian Whitaker, which will probably perk up a lot of li the listeners' ears because he is like a natty legend. Uh, he coached Brian Whitaker to win 2015, I think it was, um, and actually is currently working with him and uh, is a true family man and uh, is helping his son in, I know, with his soccer team, uh, not soccer, American football team, am I right? American football? No, uh, uh, soccer. Oh, or it is what, soccer. What everybody else calls football, yes. Yes, I always get, it's easy to get those confused. Uh, I'm a big fan of soccer or football, less so the American one. I'm just not as aware of it. Uh, so yeah, Mike, how, how's it? How are things hanging over there? How are you feeling? How are you doing? I'm, I'm doing great, man. And, you know, we were just talking off air about how long it's been. And it's been a couple of years, obviously, since I've been on here. And then I was saying it's been four years since I saw you. Uh, uh, Eric Helms and I came to London to do some talks with what was at the time shredded by science. And uh, so, man, it, it's just crazy how the time goes. But I'm doing great. Uh, family's good. Appreciate that. And, and things are going well personally and professionally, man. So I'm happy to be back. And I appreciate the invitation. And I think... At least as I'm concerned, Mike's always like the joke is Mike doesn't do social media. So many of you might be like, because we're in a bit of a, and we were just talking about this actually, like a YouTube, Instagram age. So social media is such a big thing. And that's almost where a lot of people discover information. And uh, I think bodybuilding and strength sports and training is like, it's a, it's like a little bit of a hub where we're in a little bit of a niche, especially natural bodybuilding, especially the evidence-based side. So it's like, if you're not on Instagram, how do I find out about this guy? So uh, the mass research review, uh, you'll hear his voice uh, very regularly and he's doing fantastic work over there and uh, recently on the Iron Culture podcast and now back on here, which is very exciting. And I actually think maybe we should start with this. We're going to talk about some work surrounding failure because 
again, a lot of you who are subscribed will have seen Mike doing a lot of work investigating kind of the relationship between proximity to failure and hypertrophy, which we're definitely going to dig into. And it's been something that has been spoken about a ton on the podcast, but I think we're approaching it in a slightly different way and eke out some further information on that. But something we were just talking about, Mike, was your transition uh, fairly recently, uh, which was kind of, I guess, forced upon you somewhat in terms of having injuries recurring from powerlifting. And when I said was a powerlifter and a very, very good one, very strong, much stronger than I will ever be, actually. Uh, but you're kind of forced to shift gears. And I thought that might be something valuable to touch on, at least just for anyone who's listening, who might be in a similar position or maybe anyone who could get there in future and how they might approach it. So I don't know if you want to kind of give some background behind what, why powerlifting is now something that is kind of not a focus for you. Sure. Yeah. With, with trepidation, because once I get to the end result, as Steve found out uh, a few moments ago, um, I realized that uh, everybody will probably tune out or Steve may rightfully, by the way, uh, kick me off the podcast at the moment, <laughs> but yeah, I trained as, as a power lifter specifically for, I'd say about nine or 10 years, uh, competed a number of times, uh, competed at the Arnold classic, which is an international powerlifting meet qualified for that here in the United States a while back and had some, had some decent years. Certainly a lot of people, a lot stronger than me, but did okay. Enjoyed it. And still, still coach powerlifters and bodybuilders to this day. Uh, and enjoy that practice very much. But uh, about a year and a half ago, I had to make the decision to to stop lifting as I was. And that came because of some back injuries that I've had for about 15 years. And so I'm going to give you the end result briefly of what I do now. Uh, and then just cover my face in case somebody runs over here as quickly as possible to punch me in the face. Uh, and then I'll give you the story about how I would have uh, made that. And so now for the past year and a half, I've been training full-time as a marathon runner. All right. Nobody looks like they're coming in to hit me. So I'll continue. And, uh, you know, as I said, I, I, I had a back injury, suffered a back injury, which was uh, an L5S1 herniation back in 2006. And I did this. And then that was in the winter of 2006. Honestly, it was on New Year's Day. I remember that specifically. Uh, and I also remember uh, later that week in immense pain watching in American football, what was the University of Southern California versus University of Texas, Vince Young, Matt Liner, Reggie Bush national championship game in immense pain uh, from my back injury. I realized two people understand that reference. Um, and so after that, I played soccer in college. I still had one more season, didn't tell anybody about the injury, played with it. Um, it was, it was uh, very difficult to play through, got to practice uh, early, would run for maybe a good 30 minutes for it to loosen up every day. Um, was limited striking the ball with my left foot because of the pain and so forth. Anyways, after that, I actually, while I was simultaneously lifting, I ran in five marathons over the next few years, not well. Uh, not well at all. Didn't really train for them. Just did some running on the side because I had some endurance capabilities from soccer. Uh, and then in 2010, uh, started, made the decision, 2000, late 2009, 2010, to uh, stop endurance training at all and just focus solely on lifting and uh, train for powerlifting for the next 10 years. Uh, I'd say actually up until around 2018. But during during this time, my back injury was always there. I saw many physicians, looked at many options and uh, many MRIs and nothing was able to solve the issue. 
Now, I'm aware that I was exacerbating the issue through continuing to train. Frustratingly, I didn't incur this injury lifting, uh, but lifting did exacerbate it. Every time I would set a PR, um, get elite, really strong, at least for me, then I would have some issue and I would, I would throw out the back, go into a lateral hip shift and kind of be hunched over and couldn't really do much. Then in about 2018, I decided I can't really squat and deadlift like I was. I'm going to train like a bodybuilder. And not that I was, as I said to Steve, I'm not saying I was a good bodybuilder, had any bodybuilding aspirations, but I'm going to train in that style. Hopefully, if I'm putting these barbell lifts on the back burner, this is more sustainable. And it was more sustainable, but not completely sustainable. And it just didn't really, it wasn't that interesting to me in terms of, you know, how I personally enjoyed to train. And although it didn't solve the problem, because I would still have days with that lateral hip shift. And I, I told Steve, what did it for me really was, you know, I, I go outside, I play soccer with my son, I coach his team. And, and he said, you know, can we go outside and play? And a couple of days in a row, I had to say, I, I can't today. And I never wanted to have to give that answer again. And so I, uh, in 2000, in March 2020, I contacted a friend of mine, Dr. Sarah Mahoney, a researcher in exercise physiology out here in the United States. And uh, she's an accomplished ultra runner as well and scientist. And I asked her if she would coach me. We've been good friends for a while. Uh, she graciously immediately volunteered and literally sent me my uh, programming that night. And I started the next day. And uh, a year and a half later, we've been training uh, uh, as a marathon runner. Uh, I, due to COVID, haven't got any actual races yet. I did do a solo marathon time trial, uh, a solo 5K time trial, solo 10K time trial, um, and uh, put in, I think last week, about 60 in terms of miles, uh, not kilometers, but 66 miles, I think, last week. And uh, uh, been training like that. And so I personally just needed something that I could train full force with no restrictions. I know that's heresy to, uh, uh, to most of us here, but uh, honestly, it allowed me to have peace of mind in life and allowed me to enjoy what I was doing again. Not that I enjoyed more than lifting or powerlifting and training in that style, but it was sustainable for me at this point, just due to my other limitations. So had to make that decision. Um, and one thing I shared with Steve was, and then I'll let him follow up with, with questions, is that I honestly wanted to make that move a little earlier, but I struggled for a little while thinking, you know, I, I kind of feel like I should be lifting. I talk about lifting, I research lifting, I've been doing it for a while. You know, then I realized nobody cares. You know, I'm, nobody, nobody's going to care. I'm not important. I'm just me. I'm not even that strong. I should do what I want to do at this phase in my life. It doesn't mean I won't come back to lifting if I can't get heavy, uh, healthy, whatever it might be. Um, and so it took me some time to get to that place. And I'm really glad I did. Uh, and I've really loved uh, this style of training and, and continue, hope to continue to do it for a long time. Yeah, it's, re it's really interesting to hear about the entire backstory. And I'm kind of interested as well. I, I wonder if, if bodybuilding, that style of training was completely pain-free for you. Do you think you would have, do you, did you, do you still prefer the running to the bodybuilding style training even? You know, that's, that's a difficult question to answer. If it was completely pain-free, I will say that it definitely would have at least taken me longer to get to where I am now. And it's possible I wouldn't have gone this route at all. And not because I would have maybe, I may have grown to love that style of training. I can't say I wouldn't have gotten there eventually, but I wouldn't have felt like I had to make a change because 
those days where I said to, to my son, hey, buddy, I can't, I can't run around today. If it was completely pain-free, then those days wouldn't have happened. And to me, that was really the tipping point for, I got to do this. I got to find something I can do to continue to get that training feeling, um, but not sacrifice what's really important. Yeah. And so it's possible I may not have made the change, um, but I'm, I'm glad that I did, not because I wouldn't have loved that artist style of training, uh, but because it also has allowed me to experience something different. And I'm really enjoying that. And, and aside from just our world of lifting, I'm a professor in exercise physiology. And so now I can talk about this, these other adaptations, these other physiological adaptations with experience. Now, not as much experience. I'm only in the game here for a year and a half. So I don't want to sound like I'm, I'm going to give advice on, on marathon training. My coach should do that. Um, that's also another thing, Steve, is the value. I hadn't had a coach. I should have had a coach my, for myself for powerlifting. I now have a coach for running and the value of having a coach is, is just amazing. Even if you do know, um, you know, what you're doing. And so that's another, uh, uh, another detail in all of this, but, you know, I, I can't say I would have made the, the leap or not if I did that, but I am glad that I did. Yeah. I think it's, I, I completely understand with just wanting to be able to do something without the thought of something going wrong, really. Uh, and I, I wonder if I could kind of relate this to people who no longer want to compete in maybe the sport of bodybuilding or if you call it a sport in bodybuilding or in like uh, bikini, like the female classes where every time potentially they diet, something just doesn't go well. Uh, they kind of bad kind of behaviors come in or whatever it might be, binge eating behavior or what have you. And I guess this is where the somewhat the like anti-diet movement has come in or like the more uh what's it called intuitive eating style of way and where people just transition to that where they're happy in their own skin they don't feel the need to push body weight up or down it's kind of like they've got out of that horrible cycle for them so it's like you you found that place of just where you feel comfortable and you're enjoying being able to pursue something and that's really what it's about for you i guess is being able to train for something and put your all into it versus what that actual specific thing is that's really so well said you know it, it's being able to I, i'm someone that that likes to to wake up early and train first thing in the morning and so i, I when i do that one it, with a family schedule it's great but also um, I go about the rest of the day and I can kind of, no matter what the day throws at me, I, I am able to relax a little bit more because I'm like, oh, I got some really good training in this morning. I feel better after doing that. And so, you know, I need that aspect of, of my life in that sense. And, you know, by, by having something like you said, that you can train that full force with no restrictions, that's really what I need. If, if you have something where, there's always this in the back of your mind is you're not enjoying it. And, and for me with this new tough style of training, you know, my alarm goes off every single day at 4.09 AM. Why 4.09 instead of four? I'm, I'm an idiot. So just deal with that. <laughs> Somebody who thinks like, Oh, I wakes up really early. I go to sleep at eight o'clock. So I, I get, you know, I get sleep. It's just a different, different time schedule. But when my alarm goes off every day, I, I wake up super excited. I cannot wait to, to run. I cannot wait to train. That's a feeling I had with lifting years ago. I woke up and it's like, I can't wait to do this today. I am super excited about it. 
and you get in those, those, I'm sure we can all think back sometime, you know, now when, when, when we lift or when I lifted just a few years ago as a veteran in it, and when most of us lift, you know, I, I'm sure sometimes what do we do now, you know, where we have our phone or we're thinking about, um, you know, the scientific strategies. We, we didn't think about any of that when we started, you know, we put our headphones in, we listened to what our music, we put our head down and we got after it. And there's something to be said for that. And I, we made, and you made great progress. And I feel like that's where I am now personally with running. I'm making great progress because I was terrible at it, right? But uh, I can really get into it every day. My alarm goes off. I can't wait to get up, get up, get some caffeine, do a few things. 30 minutes later, I'm out on the road and I'm super focused the entire time. And I didn't have that lifting for a number of years. Um, and to me, that's, uh, uh, that's really the, the best thing about it. Yeah, I, I can really relate to it because I think you uh, we're talking off air how you got into what you like initially got into powerlifting through another means it wasn't like powerlifting was your first love as it were and it's similar to me with bodybuilding like i just enjoyed sports i've just my background is just i just enjoyed football i played well soccer um that's what that was my sport and then i would do running i did rowing i did anything going where i could just push hard at it and then i found like bodybuilding kind of found me and then i just pursued that and i dabbled in powerlifting and similar to you probably with bodybuilding where it just didn't quite tick the box for you in that in that regard and I, i'll probably go back to it at some stage but it, it's that pursuit of pushing yourself hard and i think if i was to relay anything to the listeners i think that's probably what it is so if anything like if anyone is hearing this then like oh i feel like i'm in a similar position to mike or where mike was a few years ago where it's kind of like you'd progress and then regress progress and regress and it's kind of like hitting your head against a brick wall maybe it is time to try something else uh and it, maybe it is uh bodybuilding for the power lifter or maybe the bodybuilder's bored even just with the their bodybuilding because i think like you said there you want to at least enjoy what you're doing like that's uh what it, part of the uh, muscle and strength pyramids is like you've got to enjoy the the whole thing it's got to be adherable because if you're not going to enjoy it you're just you're not going to give your all to it so maybe it's worth dabbling with something else, even if it is running. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, you know, I, I was, I was talking to somebody the other day and I said, you know, if um, like, why are we doing this? Right. So, you know, you mentioned, you mentioned Brian, Brian Whitaker at the, at the outset, Steve, and uh, he, he's been one of the most influential figures in uh, this whole kind of area for me. I met Brian in 2012 I was invited, we were both invited to speak at uh, Lane Norton's first ever uh, natural bodybuilding camp in 2012, which was a phenomenal weekend. And uh, Brian was there, didn't, didn't know him, he didn't know me. And uh, he, he gave a talk and in his talk, he asked everybody in the room, um, the premise of the question I'm about to give being that, you know, what are we doing this for and, and making sure we keep our mind in the correct place. He asked everybody in the room uh, uh, how what they you know how much money they made from uh, uh, from from powerlifting and bodybuilding and bodybuilding specifically. And some people originally raised their hands, and he said, "No, no, not as a coach, but from competing in this, do you make a living?" And everybody said, "You know, no, I don't make any money." And he goes, "Okay, so keep that in perspective." Um, and Brian is the epitome of 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 you know, being a family man and having a career and doing all of these things um, and still obviously being one of the best natural bodybuilders, you know, of all time in the world and uh, being a legend. And so I, I sometimes think people 
there's two things with that. People misconstrue that with thinking, oh, well, you're saying you're not working hard. No, no, trust me. Brian is working harder than everybody else. Um, and I work very hard at what I do, but you can work as hard as you possibly can and still keep those other things in perspective. Um, so I think that's, I think that's important. And so when I come back to the, the current situation, I, I always keep that in mind. And I think of why are we doing this? Nobody is, you know, it, it's not like you're in the, the NBA, the NFL, the NHL. And I, I get it. If you're going through an injury, you're going through this, but you know, you're making $10 million a year. I, I'd stick it out too, right? <laughs> like, you know, I, I get it. Um, like that's worth it. You know, you're going to sacrifice this or that because you want to make it to the NBA. You want to make it to the NHL, whatever it might be. Um, you want to win that championship because you're, you're going to hold that, that trophy over your head. You're, you're, you know, you're playing in the premier league and, and so forth. Like that's absolutely worth it. If you decide, I get it. But for us, you know, and, and most of us, almost all of us aren't winning at a world-class loan and powerlifting, bodybuilding, whatever it is. And even if you are there, you know, you're not, you're not making a lot of money. And so what are we doing it for? And then I think you have to realize if it's not fulfilling a certain role in your life anymore, um, you know, what is it just as if, uh, uh, see, let's say I run now a runner, that's not filling the role in their life anymore. You know, one of the, another person I'm just now naming people because I'm not on the internet much. I want you guys to know that I have, I have some, some good friends. Uh, another person who you guys may or may not be familiar with, because I know it's primarily bodybuilding on, on Revive Stronger, is Matt Gary, who is one of the best powerlifting coaches in the world. And he, he's talked about how um, he, I had this conversation with him, and he said to me that, um, you know, Mike, when something, you, you use something when it's important in your life, but when something isn't important in your life, Maybe you, you move on from it, but you might pass that down to somebody else and it might be important for them at that time. Um, and so I'm going on a bit now, but, you know, I just think we need to keep in mind what we're doing this for, what we get out of it. And, um, you know, we're all listening to this podcast because presumably we're getting something out of it that's beneficial for our lives. And so many people, this podcast and so many have brought so many people to lifting, which is absolutely fantastic. And uh, we should keep doing that because you enjoy it and what you want, what you want to do. It's what you want to do. But if there's a change you need to make for whatever reason, I would encourage you to explore making it uh, for as long as it fits your lifestyle, makes you happy, helps those around you. That's, you know, those are the important reasons. I think that's so incredibly well said and something that is so worth just reminding the listeners in general, because I think particularly for bodybuilders, uh, I think powerlifters probably get similar uh, kind of. I guess the blinkers where they're just completely focused on that one thing and nothing else, but bodybuilders, because the nutritional aspect is such a big part of it and therefore social life gets impacted by it. It's so easy to just disregard everyone in your life and be like, Oh, they're not kind of helping me get towards my goals. And it's like, like you just mentioned, like even if you go and win a world title, how much money are you making from that? Probably losing money because of the flights and the tan and everything that's involved. And obviously that's like monetary value and there's other values that you can also focus on but it's it's just important to realize like would you be looking back in 10 years and be like was that worth it yeah. <laughs> like uh i'm not sure so actually something because you brought up uh, brian whitaker and i kind of had this on my mind to potentially ask you partly probably because i'm in contest prep myself and so i inevitably think about these things more and uh, something i'd be interested and in, maybe i need to ask him at some point if he would come on the podcast but 
obviously you coached him 2015 uh, and did you coach him in previous seasons to that or was that the only kind of competitive season? I did. We began in either late 2012 or early 2013 and he had a competitive season in 2013. So 2013 and 2015 competitive seasons uh, were the times I coached Brian and then a little bit after that and then we started up again about I'd say a year ago now uh, roughly a year ago and so and we're currently working together. And that is it just training or do you do yeah it's just well? training I think okay. that's an important component which is you know obviously training is is a is, is one aspect and the whole nutrition component the posing side you know I'm, I'm not a bodybuilding coach uh, I don't pretend to have that knowledge and uh, I you, you never hear me discuss nutrition uh, not that I can't, but I um, I feel inferior and I, I don't I don't feel my voice is needed. Um, so just training for Brian. I just handle the training aspect. Hey, Pascal here. I just wanted to take the moment to talk about our membership site. Inside, you'll find a thriving forum, an extensive exercise library, courses, presentations, and research reviews. All I need you to do is hit the link in the description below and sign up. Well, I think training would be interesting as well because obviously you helped him get to that point. I, I imagine you also keeping an eye on how he was looking and he got to what you'd call like that's the elite conditioning. Uh, you can't really get more conditioned than what Brian did. In terms of training, is there anything kind of that you ha you were being careful or being aware of as he was getting to that point? I guess people talk about like when you're at that lower body fat, you shouldn't load heavy maybe because you're at risk of injury and you focus more on like, I don't know, the pump and the burn and metabolites or higher rep ranges. Uh, is there anything you did specifically in that course of the prep? And did Brian deal with that better than the average person? Uh, and do you think there was anything to Brian, like was he something he managed with through his nutrition or him as an individual? Like, was there something special about Brian, do you think in particular, or I'm just interested? I don't know if that question made sense. No, it does. I, I think I'll, I'll answer in terms of, um, to some degree, you know, how, how Brian handled, I don't want to, I don't want to speak for him, uh, uh, only so much, uh, but I can answer that a little bit and then talk about any adjustments I made in, in training wise. Uh, I do think Brian handles just pretty much everything better than most, um, Again, I have a lot of admiration for him. I, I look up to him. He's, he's a bit older than me. He's also in the same profession that I am as a professor at a university. He's in a different field, and, and he's reached the highest level of that, too. So I, I really look up to him in a lot of ways and has a family and so forth. Um, and so for Brian, he, him and I correspond once a week, uh, maybe twice a week if there's something really needed. I would answer the phone. Uh, 24 hours a day for him if he if he needed anything uh, but we correspond once a week and he'll let me know uh, if hey I think we need to do this do this and since I'm not a bodybuilding coach uh, he will say hey Mike I these are the body parts I think we need to work on I don't I don't get into that I don't say uh, I think we need to work on chest or I think we need to work on back I do what he tells me to do uh, if he says I think we need to work on uh, quads which was something we needed to work on getting up to 2015 um, he was able to objectively say, uh, kind of, I don't know, that summer or so, Mike, my quads are smaller than they were before. Uh, I said, on it, no problem. Uh, made some changes and included a lot more hack squats for him. I changed the loading patterns. One of the things I did was, um, which is probably something that we'll get into today, um, I decreased the proximity to failure that he was training. Uh, so he trained a bit farther from failure. That allowed us to add more sets, and more frequency, and more volume. 
Brian also only likes to train four days per week, at least at the moment. And so um, with the schedule and so forth, which is no problem, um, but I need to work in more volume because we're not hitting a muscle group, you know, we're not training six total days a week. And so I was able to keep him a little bit farther from failure. But one of the ways I would do that is uh, because I still wanted to keep some strength to make it easier to get some of the volume, I would work up, let's say, a top set um, where I would program a, a specific load. And although we use a lot of autoregulation, one thing I'm a big fan of too, once you get farther into prep, it's a bit harder, but um, is I do like to actually program exact loads because that's we use autoregulation because it's individualized. But if I'm a coach and I work with you and I talk to you every single week and I see your numbers and I see your videos, what better individualization than knowing exactly what load you should lift? Um, so it's not a percentage. It's just saying lift this load. And I, I take some caveats with that. Like I think really conservatively. And so if I think you can do this, I might give them 20 pounds less. And I say, I want you to do your first set for as many reps as you can and it stopped the set at a, a seven to eight RP or a two to three RIR. And then I'll, you know, use that same load or something like that. And I want you to do six sets of five after that. And so assuming he's going to get about 12-ish reps on the first set, I'm programming a load, he might get about that. He's going to get some fatigue, which means he might be able to then do 10 or 11 reps on that next set which means if I program six sets of five, seven sets of five, he's going to be about a four, five, six RIR on those couple sets after that that might fatigue a little bit and can sustain that whole thing. And so I'm thinking really conservatively in how I'm doing that. Brian handles that really well. Um, he's able to really get after it. And I find that, and I'm sure we'll get into this and we're bridging the failure conversation, but this fits nicely, which is that's kind of a mix of various proximities to failure. So as not to spoil the story, but I'm someone who generally thinks, um, although we haven't talked about this, but I'm sure you're aware from some of the mass articles that you can stay a little bit farther from failure than most people think. Um, but I, I, I understand that a lot of people don't actually enjoy training that way. And if you don't enjoy it, you shouldn't do it. Um, and so it's not that it's better. It's that it's somewhat similar in the literature. And so, but people do like to put forth that effort. And so I would give him a set, a top set. He can do an RPE stop, if you will, do as many reps as he can, stop at a certain RPE, and then kind of back off after that. So anyways, I would use some of those techniques uh, in, in prep especially. And then sometimes in a deficit, if we're feeling really beat up, just I would program a really light load, or we would just use you know solely auto-regulation, you know, programming off of RIR to be able to, to utilize that set. Sometimes I would give a... Uh, uh, a variable number of sets as well and say, Hey, I want you to do, you know, three to six sets of this exercise or three to six sets of this exercise. Uh, I want you to get a certain amount of volume in. So if you're not feeling great, choose the less demanding exercise. That's totally fine. Uh, we can get some of our volume on cables and machines uh, if we want to be able to do that. So anyways, uh, that's kind of a broad answer to that, but I think Brian handles all of that really well. Um, he's someone that can handle a lot of volume. So especially over four days of the week. And because we're only training four days a week, this means back-to-back -back days or back-to-back -back workouts on the same muscle group sometimes. So that, that is when I do think it's important, uh, especially on damaging movements, to stay shy of failure, at least on the first day. You can keep it a little bit more shy of failure. Stay away from the, the, muscle, the, excuse me, the exercises that train through longer muscle lengths. Like if you have back-to-back -back days, you know, you're not using dumbbell flies on the first of a back-to-back. 
right? You're, you're doing dumbbell lateral raises, um, maybe some other basic dumbbell uh, bench press with, uh, uh, you know, three, four RAR, something like that. And then on the next day, you can use uh, the exercises that train through longer muscle length. So we'll do stuff like that. He manages that really, really well. Um, you know, when he's in prep, I, I, I don't never hear any, anything negative from him. He's a super positive guy. So those, those are some of the techniques that we use. Uh, and they've, they've gone really well with Brian and with, uh, you know, a lot of other lifters. Fantastic. No, I think that's some really nice considerations for people to think about in terms of like, I mean, even down from stimulus to fatigue in terms of what's that RPE giving you or the RER giving you and how much is that going to impact your volume, your frequency, and then even down to using RER in conjunction with how long is it going to take you to recover from a certain movement or even like what is that movement doing for you in terms of like you said long muscle lengths and like eccentrics like don't do your rdl the day before a leg curl or something similar to your kind of chest fly example before like a bench press the next day or something along those lines so really interesting and something you actually mentioned and this was going to be a later question but it's something that i think is maybe the most important question maybe is is your proximity to failure can it be as much of like what am i trying to say is the uh, staying further from failure being able to potentially do more volume because the fatigue is less and possibly have higher frequencies is that more and i don't like the word necessarily always optimal taking preferences out of it than doing a lower frequency lower volume but closer proximity to failure or is it going to, does it depend on the person somewhat? Is it fair to say it's as just preferences? They equate one is as good as the other, or do you think actually the literature is pointing in one direction at the moment here? I think that purely scientifically speaking, if I'm answering this question for a class I'm teaching, the first answer I give is that it is equivocal scientifically, that you can do either based upon the literature um, and get similar results. So I, I, I can't say, I would be very disingenuous to say that um, if you train farther from failure and added frequency and, and, and so forth, that would be a better way to go. I, I, I shouldn't say that. I can't say that. I can say that's kind of my preference, but it's, it's not a good answer to say yes. So I would say that the literature as a whole, and I, I do think the hypertrophy picture is murky. Like um, and I just said murky again, I probably people probably won't always get this, but to me, that's like a, that's a Greg Knuckles word. When I said, that's Gray. like, when I, when I think of his writing, like murky, you're like, I'm going to, mu- this, I'm going to muddy the waters, right? That's a, that's a, that's a Greg Knuckles word right there. And he's just like the best writer that, that's in the fitness industry. So that, that's a compliment, but he, that's how, that's how I envision him talking. Um, but I think the picture of, uh, uh, proximity to failure for strength, and I know this isn't our focus, but very quickly because I think it helps to understand the discussion is more is is clearer than the picture for hypertrophy. Whereas for strength, I do think I feel comfortable saying scientifically, the data uh, points to staying shy of failure. You don't want to go to failure. How far from failure? It's hard to say, but you want to stay shy of failure and keep moving the bar quickly. Uh, to maximize strength adaptations. It doesn't mean you can't ever train to failure. There isn't a place for that. That's that's not what I'm saying. That's a larger discussion. Uh, but on average, all of your sets shouldn't be to failure. For hypertrophy, I think that 
I do feel comfortable saying scientifically that training to failure and training shy of failure provide similar hypertrophy adaptations. Now, what I can't say is if you train at a five RIR, is that as good or better or worse than training to a three RIR? That I can't say. That's where I think the picture does get murky, if you will, in that when we go down that ladder of RIR, um, how far, I think, of course, there is a point where you're training too far from failure. There is a, there is a cutoff point, if you will. I just don't know where that is. And I just personally think it's farther than most people do based upon the data. And I'm going to give a lot of caveats to that um, in, in, in a minute. Um, but I think that at this point, there is uh, a number of studies. There's actually, we've mentioned uh, Eric Helms' dissertation. There's a, a couple of recent papers from Carol and colleagues. Um, there's another paper from, I, I apologize, I'm going to pronounce the researcher's name incorrectly, Levitius et al. Um, but all of those papers are showing uh, five repetitions in reserve or more are providing similar hypertrophy to either failure training or training really close to failure. Uh, there's other papers that are showing Santa Niello et al. about one to two RAR, maybe slightly improved hypertrophy compared to training right at failure. And so the point being, we can go to more repetitions in reserve based upon the scientific literature and maximize hypertrophy in the short term. Um, and I, well, actually, Steve, I, ha I have a number of other things, caveats to that. I don't know. I don't want to go on for too long before making sure you have a chance if you want to steer it in another direction. The only question I have is that when we're considering kind of the RER versus failure, is that volume equated? Great question. So when you have, so there's a number of the studies on this are using, it, not to go too far, but it'll make sense because I need to describe the studies that are not volume equated and then how they're controlling for proximity to failure. And then we'll get back to your question and we'll talk about the volume versus non-volume equated studies because the method used to achieve that is important. So a lot of those studies that are not volume equated use what we call velocity loss. Now, velocity loss, if you're not familiar, is saying that, hey, my first, I, I'm going to stop the set when I've lost 40% velocity from the fastest rep. And so I do a set and the velocity on the first rep is 1.0 meters per second. You wouldn't be using a weight for hypertrophy where you're training at 1.0 meters per second, but just to make the math easy, 40% loss is 0.60 meters per second. Once you hit 0.60 meters per second, you stop the set. And a lot of studies do that. They compare this 40% velocity loss or a large percentage of velocity loss to a smaller percent, let's say 20%. So in that previous example, you would stop a set at 0.80 meters per second. So if you stop at 0.80, that's faster than if you keep going to 0.60 meters per second. So you do more reps in the 0.60. These studies tend to equate for the number of sets, meaning that the larger velocity loss percentage gets more volume. In those studies, across the board, I would say as a whole, when comparing something like 40% and 20% velocity loss, um, the hypertrophy, the rate of muscle growth does seem to still be similar, but may lean slightly in favor of the larger velocity loss. Not in all studies. A, a lot of studies do show similar hypertrophy, but there are some that lean in favor of the higher velocity loss, but that can be attributed to simply greater volume. There was a recent paper from Anderson at all, 
And Anderson used velocity loss, uh, about 40 and 20%. I, I, I am struggling, or it was, I'm trying to remember the exact numbers off the top of my head. I actually think it was, it may have actually been failure versus a lower percentage of velocity loss. And in that study, though, it was a within subjects design, which means that one limb is assigned to the failure training and one limb is assigned to the, uh, to the lower percentage of velocity loss. That's a great design because of the genetic variability or the individual variability uh, with, with lifters in these studies. And so that within subjects design, what they also did was, though, they had they looked at the amount of volume that was done in the leg training to failure. Then they had the non-failure or velocity loss leg do um, additional sets to equate for that volume. In that study, there was no difference in muscle growth. You could argue there was actually a slight lean in favor of the non-failure training group in that study. And it was substantially far from failure, let's say three to five RA or something of that nature on average. That's another thing is when we talk about the, the, I wrote a mass article a while back, um, a while back, two, three months ago, um, on uh, proximity to failure. And in that, I created a really large table of, I, I went and searched for a, kind of like a systematic review of all of the velocity loss studies. And then I did my best going back through the literature to match up and estimate the exact number of repetitions in reserve that each of these studies have. And I, I wanted to do that because if you just say there's this percentage of velocity loss, that's kind of meaningless, right? Practically, we want to know how many reps in reserve because that's how a, a practitioner can really use it, a lifter can use it on a daily basis. And when you, when you do that, though, I was able to give an average number, but some of them were like this study trained between a two and an eight RIR. But that's the case because if you use velocity loss, fatigue sets in from set to set. And then you're closer to failure on the latter sets than you were on the first set. So you have the average number of RIR trained in these studies, and then you have the RIR trained on each individual set in these studies, which also makes it hard to interpret because let's say they train most sets to a six RIR, which is really far from failure by most people's standards, but they train the last one to a two RIR. Well, it's, but hypertrophy was similar to a failure group. It's possible that the two RIR is the one doing the work um, in that. Although I don't believe that's the case, that is possible, right? We, we have to acknowledge that possibility. Um, so anyways, I thought the Anderson study, which was the within subjects design was really good. So to give the, the shortest answer possible to your study, now that I've, to your question, now that I've talked for seven and a half hours on, on this, is that not all of the studies are volume equated because they're velocity loss which I'm not a proponent of velocity loss, by the way. Um, I, can, I can outline those issues uh, in either today or another, another time. But um, to answer the question, not all of the studies are, are volume equated because of the velocity loss issue. They're typically equated for sets. So the higher velocity loss gets more volume. In some of the studies where the higher velocity loss gets more volume, there is a lean toward faster muscle growth. Um, with a group closer to failure. However, not always. A number of those studies, even with less volume, still show similar hypertrophy. In studies that have equated volume, it tends to be similar or slightly favors the farther from failure group. That's very interesting because at least I, from what I know about volume and kind of the, it's a U-shaped curve and essentially a lot of people talk about the more volume you can do and recover from is kind of like that's what's going to maximize muscle growth. So if a set that left more reps in reserve 
was equal to a set that was to failure in terms of the amount of hypertrophy it's going to create. If there's less fatigue, you imagine you maybe could recover from more and therefore the overall dose of hypertrophy that you're going to stimulate for that individual's possibly going to be higher. But I guess that's something that hasn't been like researched. So we're kind of like uh, drawing from the data and trying to kind of, yeah, make conclusions from it without knowing. Yeah, it, theoretically, it makes a lot of sense. It's something that I've I've been a proponent of, you know, for a while. Uh, but you know, when you talk about that that U shaped curve, I also think it's it's interesting. Is sometimes we think, hey, more volume, you know, even even if we can recover from it, more growth. But a lot of studies will show, you know, some difference in volume. But I, I think it's important to note that that volume has to be enough to to be meaningful, right? Or to make a substantial difference. And so I'm not sure, you know, sometimes if we calculate total volume or volume load, which isn't always the best metric, um, although then there's a trend, this is all the other conversations, just a trend to now just count number of sets. I would push back on that a little bit too um, and, and use relative volume, uh, you know, really sets times reps times the percentage of 1RM rather than the load itself as, as the best volume metric. But sets is very good from a very practical, but then you get into the um, count hard sets, but what is a hard set? My definition of a hard set is, I don't know if I have one. It's training farther from failure than most people. Some people might equate tech hard sets at three RIR or less, which is the typical definition. doesn't mean I'm right. It just means that we don't have a, a, you know, a, a uniform understanding of, of what this is. Uh, uh, nonetheless, so I think what degree of more volume is helpful? And then at what point is it, is it harming yourself? You know, we can get caught up in all of this and, and it's a really cool discussion. I, I enjoy getting caught up in, in this sense, but, you know, ultimately not to sound, you know, unscientific or, or, you know, just brushing it aside, you know, are you making progress? How do you feel? And, um, you know, that's really what matters is, is when we get into that. And so, is it enough volume if you add one set, if you add this, is it going to make a difference? No. But one thing we also can't tell in research is that you also need to make appropriate jumps in volume. And so if you add, if you're doing 10 sets on a muscle group and you add, which across a week for well-trained bodybuilders, you know, although we hear that recommendation, that's probably not enough, um, probably very far from enough in, in a lot of cases. Um, but if you make a, a change in volume, let's using that number 20%, that's two sets uh, increase or whatever your volume load is, then, you know, that's not going to maybe move the needle for hypertrophy right away. And then over another 15 weeks, maybe you add 20 more percent, another 15 weeks, you add 20 more percent. Now over the course of a year or two years, you have uh, double the volume that you did previously. That is probably enough volume. So the question is that to, to move the needle, you need to accumulate this over time to see that, that initial 20% one or two set increase in and of itself might not be able to do it, but it is the vehicle to get you to that double the volume. I'm not saying everybody go out and double their volume, right? You might not need to, right? There's so, so many caveats to this, but just theoretically, um, and, and research can't pick that up because research is doing these six, eight, 10 week studies. Uh, you know, and then when research does pick up volume increases, sometimes it's these really, really high volume studies. Um, but those are really overreaching studies, right? You're not going to sustain that type of volume over time. You might volume cycle 
and you might do these high periods of volume on some muscle groups for five, six weeks, pull back um, to more of a maintenance level, then push other muscle groups up and so forth. That's reasonable. But the point being that it's hard for research to pick up if that amount of volume is helpful, uh, that amount of volume increase is helpful because really adding a set or two, uh, it probably isn't going to make that huge difference, but it's a vehicle to add another set or two in another few months, add another set or two in another few months, um, and then see over time if that volume is then manifesting into more muscle growth. Yeah, I think the the volume, everything we're talking about here, even failure in itself is something that you kind of, not everyone has the same definition for it. Not everyone has the same definition for volume and even down to like the number of sets you're doing for a muscle group well they can't all come from leg extensions for example you need like it just becomes a bit of a i guess a challenging conversation to have like defined things to to look at when you're kind of programming for a bodybuilder then is there anything you're looking at to get to that kind of when you're trying to optimize muscle growth say for uh for brian's quads what are you looking for in terms of like number of sets, the kind of RER, uh, yeah, the RER you're using, are you using volume cycling as a practitioner? What's your best kind of guess at what's the, the right uh, recipe? I know I'm, I know I'm doing this a lot. Um, I promise I'm not, I'm not running for any office, but can I dodge your question for a moment and, <laughs> yeah. and, and pivot to, to something? Then, then we, I will answer this. Absolutely. But um, it, it kind of goes along with it, which is, there were a few caveats I wanted to give yeah. to the discussion. Um, and I also, the first thing is my opinion on this could absolutely be wrong. Um, absolutely. Uh, I don't, I don't think I am at the moment. Otherwise I wouldn't be saying it, but it, it very well could be right. We don't know. Um, and I think that's important, but the caveats I wanted to give, um, are that there are a few things. If, if I can say with confidence that the literature at this point, is saying training shy of failure or training to failure provides similar hypertrophy. Okay. That I think there's adherence issues with always training to failure over the long term and that sort of thing. But nonetheless, that aside, I think we also have to consider what we don't know in that picture, which is we don't know how failure versus non-failure training on an exercise affects a synergistic muscle growth, a synergistic muscle group. We don't know how failure and, and non-failure training uh, uh, affects regional hypertrophy. And so if, if we can take a look at some of this, especially depending upon the exercise. So like the leg extension, for example, is recently shown to increase rectus femoris hypertrophy, but not vastus lateralis, right? So there was a, another study I mentioned earlier from Santa Niello et al. They used a leg press and a leg extension, and they saw fastest vastus lateralis increase in a group training about one to two reps from failure versus a group training to failure. Now I said leg press and leg extension, but as we noted, the leg extension in another study didn't increase vastus lateralis thickness. So in the Santaniello study, since vastus lateralis thickness increased, it was probably the leg press doing the work for the vastus lateralis increase and not the leg extension. So if leg extension is targeting the rectus femoris, if Santaniello measured the rectus femoris, we don't know if the results still would have favored the non-failure. We can't say that based upon those results. So I think we have to be cautious in some of the statements that we're making in that we know on a whole that when the bench press is tested, typically they look at chest hypertrophy. In addition, on that, there was another study from Davies looking at training to a zero to three RAR versus some cluster set training. 
in that study, um, I think it was the proximal PEC major grew faster in the zero to three RIR traditional four sets of five, four sets of six, 80, 80 85% training versus the cluster set. But the medial and the distal PEC um, were no difference between the groups. So we don't know how proximity to failure affects these regional aspects of, of hypertrophy. And for a bodybuilder, that's especially important. Uh, you know, certainly for a powerlifter, obviously, if they could maximize, you know, regional hypertrophy too, that's great. But in general, how important is that going to be for them? Probably not as, as much. But for a bodybuilder, that's especially important, especially with those at the highest level. So I think it's important to keep those aspects in mind. I think it's important to keep in mind the, the adherence issue that uh, Steve mentioned earlier, who referred to that, uh, to that pyramid with that, I don't know, some, some, somebody that wrote it, I'm not sure. Um, I think there's a whole country that has, has a lawsuit out on that at the moment. Um, but, uh, um, you know, Eric's books, The Pyramids, obviously talked about adherence. And I think with training to failure, if you train to failure all the time, and, and I honestly doubt that in practice, a lot of people train the squat and the deadlift, you know, 15, 20 sets a week, every single one to absolute failure. Um, maybe, you know, I, I could just be unaware, but if you're doing that all the time, I think that's pretty miserable. I think it certainly impacts recovery. We know that failure versus non-failure training, at least over the course of a week, elongates recovery and then could impact training. And so I think that's unsustainable. But I also think that on the some exercises that don't train through long muscle lengths, if you want to train to failure always on a barbell curl, that's fine. No problem. Um, I don't think not training to failure is really going to allow you to do that much more volume on some of these other movements. So if you want to train to failure, you feel good doing it, you should do it. Um, I think it's really just on those lifts that cause a lot of damage. It could impact you from training again, where we need to be cautious of training to failure if we want to train them frequently and then how far from failure we train in the process of doing so. The last caveat is we're really talking about, um, we're really talking about moderate to heavier loads. I'd really say moderate loads with So if you think about, um, like EMG activity or electrical activity, you know, this with, let's say 80, 85%, something like this, uh, I don't know the exact number, but um, motor unit recruitment tends to top out. And so if you're training around there, right, the, and, and the effective rep scheme that came about some years ago is looking at, Hey, as you get closer to failure, muscle activation increases and so forth. But if you're training at a decent intensity already, it's already there on the first rep. So those reps do count, if you will, toward the hypertrophy stimulus. Um, so a volume is equated theoretically right? If you only do singles or doubles at 85% of one RM or 90% of one RM, I'm not saying I know you're going to get similar hypertrophy, but theoretically you could make the case that training a bunch of singles at 90% would be just as effective for hypertrophy. Physiologically, practically, it makes no sense whatsoever. Um, it's just practically you'd be in the gym forever. You wouldn't want to train like that. It wouldn't be fun. You would never do it. I'm recommending against that. I'm just saying physiologically. Um, so if you're training with low loads, uh, we can't say you should stay or you, you can stay far from failure. You may need to go to failure if you're training with 30, 40, 50% of one around. Anyways, I dodged your question, but I wanted to mention the synergistic, the regional, uh, and the loading paradigm, which I think is important. And then just the adherence aspect uh, in, in this context. Um, did I 
was my political speak pretty good there, Steve? No, it was. Uh, I think I agree with the adherence. Like you do get people that will say they trained to failure and they always have like forever and never deloaded. And it's kind of objectively, I'm not sure. Subjectively, maybe they feel that was the case, but I think objectively it'd be very difficult to do so. And I am aware of some low volume kind of failure training type of programs that you do see these issues, like they burn people out, that kind of thing. Uh, and then, yeah, I mean, the regional uh, hypertrophy is very interesting because I don't think that is something that many people consider uh, at all. And then obviously, yeah, like you said, once you're at a certain load, in in uh, terms of kind of eight, if 80% of one rep max, what does that equate to if we're talking to training to failure? Is that like five reps or something? No, I'd say more than that. Typically, typically 75% is thought of over 10 okay. RM. And so I would say 80%. You know, around an eight, eight-ish, one RM, you know, the, the yeah. variability and how many reps somebody can do is highly individual. Like yeah. we did a, a couple studies showing uh, that the number of reps performed a failure at a 70% one RM in a squat was uh, between six and 28. And so now only one person did six and only one person did 28. But the point being in two different studies, the average number of reps performed at 70% of squat was 14. And one study, the average was 16 plus or minus four and standard deviation. And so it's really variable. Um, as I'd also say it varies among exercises. And so I can't remember all of them, but there's an old paper from, from Hoger, I think in the early 1990s, um, right around Helms's 40th birthday. And so, and the, uh, you got it. It's okay. it's like, <laughs> and so, <laughs> so he's uh, older than that captain America. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think he's older. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, in that paper, um, they looked at the number of reps performed on various exercises at around 80% of 1RM, and including curls and lat pulldowns and, and some uh, bodybuilding-specific important exercises. And the number of reps performed was highly variable between exercises. So now we're typically not using a percentage of 1RM to program curls, um, but I would say on a squat or a bench press and an eight-ish 1RM on average for at 80%. Hi guys, Steve here. Just wanted to take a moment of your time to remind you of our online coaching service. At Revive Stronger, we pride ourselves on providing personalized service that will take your physique and knowledge to the next level. If you're interested, check the description and sign up. Cool. Yeah, it's... I, you can see that I don't use percentages very often as a, a bodybuilding coach. Don't need, don't need to. <laughs> no so no the, reason. The reps are the, my guide. Uh, so yeah, and then I guess getting to the question, if you have uh, an answer, in, like in terms of what you're practically using the science and I guess your experience to get that kind of best result. Yeah, so and in, in what I'm using in a general proximity to failure, I would say is, one, I, I'm a big proponent in coaching of giving people a lot of what they need, but also some of what they want. And that if, you know, I, I think scientifically, here's my interpretation of the data and, and not, not to sound like I'm not giving anything definitive and I'm just being a baby, but we're all guessing a little bit on all of this. Right. I think that's just the very honest answer for anybody that's out there listening. You can go and you can look into these studies and you should, and you should make your own determination. Um, and you may change your opinion one way or the other um, 
you know, based upon looking at that research, but we're all guessing a little bit on training. If, if, if we knew you should do exactly this train to failure training exactly in this style, then we wouldn't need any of these discussions. We would just do it. Um, so we're all, we're all guessing a little bit. And there's, this is an area where you can very reasonably disagree uh, on, on some of this. I, I think that's very reasonable. But what I'm actually doing, and I say give people uh, some of what they, they, they want and a lot of what they need, is that I might think, you know, I get a new client and I might think, wow, their frequency is low. I'd really like to increase it to at least twice a week, maybe three times a week on a muscle group. They're training to failure all the time, which honestly, if you're only training once a week, might be the way to go because you're not worried about recovery. And there is a study from Karsten showing frequency only once a week training to failure does provide better growth than training shy of failure. Um, but I think the frequency is, is limiting in that study. But anyways, I, I might get someone and say, hey, I'd like them to train more frequently. And to do that, I would like them to stay pretty far from failure. But they love how they train. Well, if I take that person and I say, hey, you know what? We're done with this trash. We're going to have you train three days a week. And you're going to train no higher than a, no more than uh, or no less than four RIR. And, uh, you know, we're going to cut out uh, some of these other movements and do these. Well, he or she is going to go through that program the first couple of weeks, and then they're going to find a new coach. Um, not because what I might be giving them wouldn't be effective long term, but it's not going to be effective if they're not going to buy into it. And they're just going to hate it. And so there's no point to doing that. So despite my, my want to get the information out there, not that I think you should train to a five RAR, but that I think you can some of the time. If people don't want to do that, they shouldn't do it. I got, I remember uh, almost 10 years ago, it's 2012. I got an email. Uh, I've shared this with, I think my students, it's just funny, a funny anecdote uh, from somebody saying, uh, I was doing a lot of the, uh, my dissertation had just come out of doing some undulating periodization stuff at the time. And uh, somebody's like, Hey, I read your paper. I'm like, okay. And uh, he goes, it, it was good. I uh, enjoyed some of this. Didn't agree with all of it, but agreed with some of the points. Um, and it seems reasonable. He goes, but I don't like to train like that and I'll never do it. And he goes, bye. And he ends the email. <laughs> and I was just, I just started laughing hysterically. I'm just like, dude, then, then don't do it. Like, it, it doesn't matter. This is one, this is of no consequence to, to my life. And two, uh, don't train like that. You shouldn't, you shouldn't do it then. Uh, we can find something else that you would enjoy. So anyways, if, if I give somebody all of that, I don't think they'll like it. So what I do in practice is I try to get a gauge for how they like to train and what they enjoy. Then, depending on what their goals are, so let's say for the moment I have a guy who's a powerlifter, a pretty high-level powerlifter, national champion in his country, and um, we, we really have been trying to work intensely on a couple days and then accumulate our volume uh, on another day on some other movements. And so on those other movements on, on the volume day, we stay pretty far from failure because I'm trying to keep him fresh for the days. He's really going heavy every week, you know, 90% plus of his, of his one RM for right now for our goals. And so I'm keeping him pretty far from failure, four, five, six RPE, uh, you know, um, so in terms of RAR, four to six RAR. Uh, I have another individual who I just stopped working with after I'd say maybe six or seven years. Great guy. And uh, we, 
I, I just realized his volume and his strength was always better when we stayed with more repetitions in reserve. He just did not handle that much volume. So we stayed really far from failure and it worked great. But there's other people that seem to respond better to staying, maybe not better to staying close to failure, but enjoy it. Recovery isn't an issue. They never complain. They always seem fresh and they seem to enjoy doing it. So with them, I'll give them something that's, you know, seven, eight, nine RPE uh, and be able to do that. I have another individual who's, I believe in his fifties um, on the main lifts. We only train to uh, uh, four or five RAR and we never do more than two sets. And then we accumulate volume through his assistance movements and get him going to, uh, to closer to failure at failure a little bit more uh, with Brian specifically, we train um, almost everything non-failure, except we have some drop sets that are incorporated in. Currently, we have some rest, rest pause that's currently incorporated in uh, for some time efficiency issues. Um, and so, like, I just think that's another big, big thing is, you know, whenever we hear I'm a proponent of this or I'm a proponent of this and that sort of thing, and I can say I'm a proponent of this or that based upon the data, but really everything is just conceptual and everything has its place. So when we say about, you know, rest pause or something like that, I would say, I don't think that you should only train like this. Do you have to use this to progress? No. Can you use it? Sure. When would you use it? I'm short on time. I need to accumulate all that volume here. Go for it. And so that's what we've done with Brian a little bit. His main lifts are a lot of RAR stop, a lot of, uh, hey, here's a load, here's 190 on bench press, 190 pounds. Um, and so I want you to go ahead and do as many reps as you can until you have two reps in reserve. And then when I want to progress, that strategy has inherent progression because he can keep doing more reps. Or I can say once he gets to over the course of five sets, he accumulates more than 50 reps in one session, I can increase the load from 190 to 195. Or I can increase the, the uh, take the RIR from a two RIR to a one RIR that he's training to. So there's so many different ways to do it. Or he, he can do three sets of that. And once he hits 10 reps, at least on each set, then I can go to uh, uh, four sets or five sets. And then once he gets five sets, then we increase the load, right? All of those ways are viable. And one isn't even really better than the other. We don't, there aren't, there isn't data to say this exact thing in this situation is better than that. We just have these constructs. So then I think going back to your question earlier, which is, um, you know, talking about how to, like you talked about Brian specifically and how do we handle some of these things in prep and what are some of these strategies? Well, when somebody's in a deficit, you have to figure out which one of those is easiest for them to maintain. Increasing the load probably isn't the right strategy. So in that case, perhaps uh, making them, taking them from training those RAR stops from a one RAR to maybe a two to three RAR. If you don't want to get too far from failure, assuming we're somewhat all on board with staying three RAR or less, um, then you can take them from a one RAR to a three RAR and then add some sets to be able to accumulate volume that way. So there's just so many ways to go about it. But what I think is important is that as long as we all understand all of these concepts then your program, Steve, and my program could look different to the naked eye in the sense that I'm using RAR stop and you're not. But the programs are similar conceptually and they're equally as good. Um, it's what that person can, can respond to and adhere to and how much volume they can handle, how much they can progress. And so, you know, I, I know that's, that's a lot, but it's really just the, 
the concept that I think is important to, to understand. And, and so the last thing I'll say in this, I always say is that the best coach for a, for a lifter, assuming that coach meets the basic criteria of, of, of basic evidence-based practice and understanding and things is that the best coach for that lifter is the person who's been coaching them for a long time because they know them. Yeah. They know how they're going to respond and which one of these strategies, like if I have a lifter and you have a lifter, um, they, they might benefit from, from changing after a while for whatever reason. But if they're in prep right now and they say, Hey, Steve and Mike have a similar understanding of these concepts. Well, we'll flip flop. Don't do that. I don't, I don't know this person, you know, so, uh, you know, incorporating all of those concepts is the way to go. So in practice, I do use all of those things. They use a little bit of failure training, um, those drop sets, rest, pause, to get that in for people. If I have somebody training, let's say, you know, Monday through Friday, on Friday, they don't train again until Monday. That's the longest time. Assistance work usually gets to failure or close to it. Maybe the last set on a main lift to failure. So I do use some failure training. You can also see quantifiably how much that person has progressed by how many reps that they do on the last set of a main lift. You can use that to aid in your progression for the next week. So failure training is a cool tool to use for those quantifiable reasons. Um, it's just, if you're using it all the time, it become a bit too much for recovery and so forth. So that's where I would program it. Uh, but I use all of those strategies, uh, in, in place, uh, with, with lots of different lifters, depending on their goals. I really like that answer. Uh, I don't know if the listeners will be the same as me because sometimes people like black and white answers and you to give a specific, like always train it to RER, whatever, something like this. Uh, but just the way you approached it was very much from, I can tell you coach. Like and you're a great coach because you're really taking the individual physiology, psychology as well, which obviously are kind of intertwined anyway into into consideration. And at least my takeaway is there if anyone is saying you absolutely have to train to failure all the time to grow, they're incorrect, more than likely. But if someone's saying you shouldn't train to failure ever because it's like the wrong way to go, or you should always leave like two two reps in reserve and you shouldn't go past that or what have you they're probably also incorrect. And it's a case of this is another coaching tool in our toolbox, along with everything else that you kind of spoke about that we should use to our advantage. And we might change it for different individuals or at different times to suit the overall outcome and goal. So yeah, I think that was a really nice answer. Maybe not the one people want though. (laughs) Thanks, man. Yeah. The, the, you know, I think it's important, you know, when we're getting our, our evidence and our information to always, you know, consider how the, how the person is delivering that. Are they, are they cautious? Do they understand that they, they could be wrong in what they're saying? Do they understand really that there's leniency? And, he, and even if they're not wrong in saying you should always do this or that based upon the data, that's probably not going to work for every person. Um, one, as we know, research is typically looking at the average response, right? When we say this, so that's the other thing too, in these studies, if I say a five RAR was similar to failure or to a two RAR in the study, not for everybody, there was somebody that in a within subjects design, like the Anderson study, there was somebody that grew more doing this style of training, the failure or the non-failure than the other. There was a study recently that came out. I, I, I talked about it apart in a, in a, in a mass video. I won't mention that again. I've mentioned that that too much where somebody thinks I'm, I'm on here to shill for that. That's not the point. So uh, no more mentions of that. Uh, but uh, I, there was, I, I talked about in a video recently, a study that came out that talked about the individual training response to different modalities. And it compared drop set training, traditional style training. And I think 
uh, pyramid style training. And across the group, there was no difference. But in a, in a, within subjects design, I believe, but some individuals did grow more with traditional training. Some individuals did grow more with drop set training. It could have just been variation for whatever reason, but I, I do think that we should be cognizant of the fact that we talk about mechanical tension for hypertrophy, um, although um, metabolic stress has fallen out of favor, it doesn't mean it doesn't contribute at all to hypertrophy. And it is possible that some mechanisms for some reason and some individuals contribute more than others. And if we don't know why, I, I can't give you a practical way to say, hey, you're somebody that's going to benefit from more metabolic stress. I, you know, I, I don't know. Um, but if that's the case, then training to failure or some of these other techniques may be more beneficial for you. So if you're, if you're not responding to something well, and the research on average says that you can do this though, should you keep doing it? No, you shouldn't keep doing it, right? Like, it's possible you don't have it configured correctly. Okay. And yes, you, you should try that first and so forth. But if you keep doing it for a long time, you say, the research says I can train to a five RIR, but I'm doing that. One, I hate it. Two, I'm not growing. S stop doing it, right? Do something else. Uh, and so I, I think that's you know really important is that the, the individual response, of course, the individual magnitude of volume uh, as, as we know, but the, the fact that different mechanisms that are driving the hypertrophic response could cause more growth in some people than others. For whatever reason, that mechanism is something that, that you should stress. We can't necessarily know that, but that does mean there's individual responses. So when we look in the literature, you know, there's an old study from Kubel in 2005. There, there was a, a adult uh, men and women. So not lifters that were trained, that were well-trained. So there, this gap would be narrower and in, in, in us talking or, my former self and everybody else listening is that over the course of a training study, the, 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 the range of growth of, of strength was zero to 250% increases in strength. And there's other studies replicating the large degree. I've pulled some of the data from our own studies and I can tell you, sometimes we will report an average change in strength of 8%, 10%, whatever it is. Somebody sometimes gets weaker. Somebody sometimes increases their strength by 25%. I'm just giving you the average number in that paper. And so I think it's really important to point out that if that person lost two and a half kilograms in their, in, in their lift on, on a study that we did, that, that training style was not good for them. What should they do? I don't know. Um, but the paper is giving you the average. So again, I've, I've, I've gone off, but I think there's a lot to unpack there and for everybody to, to just not, not always worry about well, the literature says exactly this. And these are just tools that we can use to guide the basics. As long as somebody has kind of the basic tenets in general correct, I, I think we're good to go. Um, and then they get to know that individual and, and how they coach and how they do things. Very well said. Yeah, I, I say it regularly, actually, when I have clients sign up, I'm like, don't expect the program initially to be perfect. I'm a great coach, but I, I need to see how you're going to respond to it, which is exactly what you're saying. Like, actually, you can start with the science, but then like N equals one, see how you're responding to it. 
and make changes appropriately. And uh, I want to say a massive thank you, Mike, for you coming on. Uh, I realize I've taken quite a bit of your time and uh, we could probably talk for a long, long time on this subject. And it just goes to show how well you know it, which is really, really cool. And we might have to drag you back on probably sooner than uh, two years or however long it's been now uh, that, that it will be. Uh, and I'm going to plug it because I know you've already said you're not plugging it, but Mass, the research review, there is, if you're interested in this topic, there's a ton more on there loads of other amazing information on there as well uh, but mike if there's kind of if people want to get coached by you do you still offer that uh, where should they reach out if they want to kind of learn more from you mike i i do um i i will say that i coach i have uh, five clients i've had five clients for years and i i'm not taking any more clients um so it doesn't mean you can't reach out um uh, if i have a you know a spot or two open up i i consider that um but uh I just try to limit it there. I have a lot of other responsibilities. And so I, I'm not a full-time coach. And mostly I want to be able to give people the attention that they need. And so it's kind of something I do um, on the side. Does please you know, reach out if you want. Um, uh, you know, I'm not saying we wouldn't eventually work something out, but uh, that's kind of where I am. So I'm not taking on a lot of people. Otherwise, as I think Steve mentioned at the outset, I'm a, a professor at Florida Atlantic University here, which is in Florida. I'm really proud of our laboratory mostly of our students. We have phenomenal students and just, I know this isn't an academic podcast, but for everybody out there, we're having interest in research. You see this research and you may see my name or another professor's name that you know, but I would encourage you to look at those students' names. They're the ones that are doing so much of this work. Uh, you know, I, I might sit here and, and I write the papers and I have to go to administrative meetings and this and that um, and, and so forth. But those students are in the lab every single day and they're crushing it. And so I would encourage you to look at their names um, uh, on these papers and, and so forth and, and follow their careers as well, because they're the ones that are going to be, you know, I'm 36 years old. They're, they're, they're the ones that are going to be coming up and, and taking over. So I'm at FAU. If you're interested in our research, you can find us on Google Scholar and PubMed. Um, people don't think I have an Instagram, but I do. It's at the gardening dietitian. Um, so at the gardening dietitian, I give you all of the tips and tricks for gardening, uh, baking that you need. Uh, you can check that out. Uh, that's my wife's Instagram. Um, uh, otherwise, uh, you know, you can check out Mass if you if uh, if you so choose. And then just uh, my running coach I mentioned earlier, Sarah Mahoney. She's a great coach. Uh, if you if you're interested in that, you can see her. And one thing I forgot to mention, it's not to plug his business, Steve. And I know I'm going on, but one of the ways I also got healthy is I worked with a physical therapist in town here where I live. His name is Ben Kors. He's part of the clinical athlete. And um, he is just the greatest guy. And uh, without his guidance, I realize people, so this is not to, to, to you know, plug anybody or business in terms of that. If you go see him, great. But I realize most people listening to this aren't in the United States, let alone in Florida. It's just to make sure that everybody knows there are other people that help with these journeys and these things. And he was just a phenomenal guy, good friend, and, and uh, really helped me a lot with my back injury to help me facilitate running. So um, anyways, academically where I do most of the work mass and then um, the gardening dietitian if you want to learn how to bake loaves of bread fantastic I don't think I even follow you there so I'm gonna to have to search that one out <laughs> I'm, I'm on I post the uh, uh, the stories uh, I know about the stories and yeah, the stories uh, the posts all the all the things that you need um, I'm on there for all of your Instagram needs I can help you at any time otherwise <laughs> My sincerest thanks, truly, Steve. It's a pleasure. Anytime, I'd love to come on. You, you, Thank you. You run a great podcast. I do listen sometimes, and so I appreciate the invitation. Appreciate that a lot. And I, I think you'll be surprised how many American and even Florida-based listeners we might have. 
Uh, a lot of the guests are from Florida. So, uh, but anyway, yeah, thank you again, Mike. And thank you guys for listening. We'll catch you very soon. So I'm Steve Hall, founder of Revive Stronger and a coach of Revive Stronger. My name is Pascal Floor. I'm the co-owner of Revive Stronger and also a coach, of course. Revive Stronger has probably been going solidly for three years, probably roughly about three years. Revive Stronger to me, it is becoming kind of my child, my foster child. It's the gathering and getting together of like-minded people. We've been expanding the coaching team, which is helping us help more people, uh, but each coach can only help a certain number of people. Right now, it's all over the place. We have YouTube, we have Facebook, we have Instagram, but there isn't that community aspect behind that. And so the next step for us is developing a membership site. So basically we want to create a family and a community that is then benefiting from another. A really cool community for people within our little niche is going to be a website. They will get early access to our podcast. You can access us, ask us questions, the community aspect. We have a forum there. You can ask questions, but also you can, you can lock your journey. There's also going to be courses on there, courses, presentations on different topics, discount of past seminar footage. We will log our journey as well. We'll start vlogging. We're gonna have documentaries, our entire athletic journey. Furthermore, they get access to an exercise video library. The exercises that we love for hypertrophy and maximizing hypertrophy, we're gonna go through those in depth, telling you how to execute them. We cap them concise and also mobile friendly so that you can watch them in between your sets. I'm super excited to grow this community. The amount of value that we're going to be delivering is huge. And I'd love you to be part of it. You will get so much out of that. I'll see you inside.